Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. Uh, if we sound a little different this week, guys, it's because Nicole is at her house and I'm at my house and we're trying this through distance, which should be fun. Yeah, technology. Also, if things are a little delayed, that's because there is a slight delay. Hooray! Welcome to 2020, y'all. Yep. So we are in Illinois this week. Uh, Illinois, the land of Lincoln. Um, I have some fun facts for you, Eden, as always. Ooh, good. They're just from a distance. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Bet. You're welcome. So, uh, I don't know about you, but when I think of Illinois, I mostly think of the Great Lakes and Chicago. Yes. But did you know that over 80% of the state's land is farmland? Illinois is actually the country's largest producer of pumpkins, very seasonal, and the second largest producer of corn. Wow. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the pumpkin capital of the world, quote unquote, is in Illinois. That's pretty cool. Yep. This cool little town called Morton, they produce apparently something like 85% or more of the packaged pumpkin that you see on your grocery store shelves. Wow. Yeah. So welcome to fall, y'all. Yeah, exactly. Basic bitch time. (laughs) Illinois is also uh, really ahead of the curve when it comes to quote unquote firsts. I just came across all these facts about how they were the first like state to do this and do that. So I grabbed a couple interesting ones. So the first all color TV station debuted in Chicago, which is pretty cool. I didn't realize that TV stations would have some color and not color programming because, you know, I was born in the (laughs) near the end of the millennium. (laughs) Uh, The term jazz was first coined in Chicago around 1914. And the first U.S. city to use electric streetlights was Aurora, Illinois, which goes by the local nickname of the City of Lights. Ooh, that sounds cool. Yeah, I thought so. So aside from uh, some really cool firsts in Illinois, there's also a lot of interesting inventions and products that have been introduced to the world in Illinois. There's actually some surprising ones I have found. So of course, we all know there's that big, huge World Columbian Expedition in 1893, where we first met the Ferris wheel and the mechanical dishwasher. Mm -hmm. I'll be talking a little bit about that too. Oh, cool, cool. Did you know that's also where the first zipper and shredded wheat were introduced? No, I did not. I think maybe the zipper thing, not shredded wheat, though. Yeah, I was like startled. I was like, I thought we had zippers for longer, but cool. Yeah. Also, Illinois has had some interesting contributions to the American culinary tradition. The first ice cream sundae was invented in Evanston, Illinois. Oh, cool. Okay, it's now my favorite state. Hooray. (laughs) And the infamous Twinkie was invented in River Forest, Illinois, 1930. Wow. Yeah. So all of Get our your f- junk food on. Exactly. All your favorite trashy junk food. Thanks, Illinois. <laughs> uh, and then my last little tidbit for this week about Illinois uh, kind of warmed my heart because, you know, as, as you know, Eden, we, we enjoy superheroes. And in fact, oh, we, yes, we do. We're test playing one of Eden's uh, superhero role playing games right now. So I thought this was very topical. Yes, it is. So Superman's fictional hometown is Metropolis, and it actually shares its name with a real Illinois city. Oh. Metropolis, Illinois is located about 360 miles south of Chicago, and it has fully leaned into the Superman connection. They have a Superman museum. It has a outdoor phone booth, a la quick Clark Kent Superman's clothing swap, and they also host an annual Superman celebration, plus the weekly newspaper in town. 
Yep. It's called the Metropolis Planet. Oh my God, that's awesome. Right? <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah, so those are my fun facts for this week. I hope you hope you enjoyed them. I did. And I also have a fun story to tell you and all the listeners out there. Yeah. Ooh, I love fun stories. Well, as of course you guys know, we're doing the Pocono Witches Festival. And I got to make a little guest appearance on E. Massey's um, podcast, which is called This Old Witch, which you can find you know anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, you can also see it on YouTube. But it was a little weird because we were trying to do it through Skype and he couldn't call me. So then I had to just do a regular phone call with him. And he was running behind schedule with uh, the guests that we're going to be on. So it was like really weird and rushed. And I don't do well with pressure. <laughs> so I refuse to listen to the episode now because I feel like I probably sound all crazy and flustered and just like spouting weird shit. I mean, that's part of your charm, Eden. I guess it is. But the, the best thing that I was able to do, and he's like, tell us about your co-host, Nicole. I'm like, oh, she's wonderful. Like talking about you was the easiest part of it. <laughs> That's awesome. When he's like, tell us about your show. I'm like, we did your crime, I think. You know, it was like really just <laughs> weird. Like, and then he's like, anything new? I'm like, well, we have a weird news thing now. Someone thought that a, that a doc was a coffin. Like, yeah, I'm just like rambling and it's terrible and I'm afraid to listen to it. I'm sure it's not as bad as you think. Probably not. I swear that I'm overreacting because I do that a lot with this kind of shit, but I, I just don't want to hear it ever in my life. <laughs> and that's okay. You can embrace that and lean into it. I mean, some people don't like to like actors, like famous, famous actors, like will not watch themselves in movies. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe you're just one of those creative types. That's fine. It's weird. The only reason that I listen to our podcast is because I kind of need to, you know? <laughs> I mean, because I make you. And also, I mean... <laughs> Like, I've gotten so used to the sound of my recorded voice, but that's a big thing for a lot of people is just like, oh, I hate the way my voice sounds on recording. It sounds nothing like it does in my head, you know? Yeah. I always think my voice is much deeper than it actually is. Oh, yeah, because it just reverberates in your head differently. Uh, I was recently shown a video, though, of how you can hear what your voice sounds like to other people. You're supposed to, like, take your hands and put them kind of around your ears, but not really. I'd have to show you. All right, next time we're not remote recording, I, I'm going to take you up on that. Okay, I will definitely show you then. And I will also tell you my story. Excellent. I'm looking forward to your true crime story since you were so excited about it this week. Oh, yeah, it seems fun. After I got past German names, everything is great. <laughs> so let's give this a whirl. My story for this week takes place in Chicago, Illinois. Chicago is certainly one of the better known cities in the state of Illinois, and with good reason. It's not only the most populous city in Illinois and the entire Midwest, but it is also the third most populous city in all of the country with 2,693,976 people calling it home. Cook County, where Chicago is the county seat, is also the second most populous county in the U.S., it's also a very respectable size, as it has an area of a little over 234 square miles. Wow. It's right by Lake Michigan, if you're looking to do anything water-related. It's a huge tourist spot with a rich history and plenty of fun things to do while you visit. I never, Art lovers. Hmm? Sorry, I'm like, I never knew that, that Cook County was like the second largest county. That's crazy. Yeah, I didn't either, because I don't honestly know a lot about Illinois, to be honest. I know Chicago, and I think that's it. Like. Yeah. yeah, and the World's Fair. Ditto, ditto. <laughs> <laughs> and H.H. H. Holmes. So, 
Art lovers will go crazy for the over 300,000 paintings available for view at the Art Institute of Chicago. And if nature is more your thing, you can always visit the lovely greenery of the Garfield Park Conservatory. Uh, Nicole, you can totally get your fancy bitch ramen on in Chicago, too, if you so choose, at a place called Wasabi. That's right. It's not just for peas. Finally, if you want to go for a walk, there's no better place than the Chicago Riverwalk, which is a wonderful spot to go for a stroll by the water. There's also plenty of places to stop and eat and drink on the way. Uh, so this town also has the site of one crazy-ass murder I will now tell you about. And this is the story of Adolf Lutgert. Oh, very German. Yes. So I'm just going to say in plain old American English now. Adolf Ludwig Lutgert. There we go. <laughs> he was born in Gütersloh, Germany, which is formerly Westphalia. Uh, he was born on December 27th, 1845, to parents Christian Heinrich Lukert and Margreta Sophia Severin. He was the fourth child of 16 children. Got so many kids. I know. I do not want that many kids at all ever in my life. Thank you very much. Take them away from me now. It's like you'd literally have your own like basketball team. Exactly. Yeah. You don't need that. <laughs> Yeah, you can keep your 17 and counting or however many kids they were up to by the end. Um, so there were two girls and the rest were all boys in this family. Um, Adolf also had a twin brother named Heinrich Friedrich who went by Fritz because that's a lot easier to say. Uh, 100% agree. Uh, I'm pretty sure his mother was a stay-at-home mom, both because I didn't find much about her and also because you pretty much need to be with that many children. It's like two full-time jobs right there, so. Plus, she was probably pregnant for like 25 years straight. Exactly. So his dad seemed to be in real estate and also worked with animal hides and wool. Okay. From what I was able to find out. Um, Adolf ended his education when he was just 14, and instead he became an apprentice tanner, tanning animal hides, not people. I don't think Snooky and company were around yet to be tanned, so he had to stick with the animal hides. Thank God. <laughs> so anyway, at this time, he was staying with his boss and mentor, a man by the name of Ferdinand Nabel. He stayed with this man, both working and living with him for two and a half years before moving on and traveling around Germany, working different jobs for a while until he settled in London, England for around six months. He seemed to like it there. He ended up leaving because he couldn't find a decent job, though. So in 1865, Lukert heard about how many German citizens like himself were having luck getting jobs and flourishing in America. So at the ripe old age of 20, he left Europe and came to the USA with only $30 in his pocket. Wow, that's crazy. Very brave and ballsy, and I like it. One about the probably the only things that I like about him, but you know. <laughs> he spent only a little time in New York City, though, which is where the boat took him. Uh, as was a huge port for immigrants at the time, as we all know. Uh, he then made his way to Quincy, Illinois, where his eldest brother, Henry, had some friends over there. Quincy didn't prove to hold much interest for him, though, so after a few months, he moved on to Chicago, which would become his new home. He looked for jobs at local tanneries and began working at Union Hide and Leather Company. 
The pay and hours weren't exactly what he thought they'd be, and he ended up going from job to job for a while. He was even a professional mover for a bit. Hmm. He worked at another tannery called Engel, Crossley, and Company for a while after this before moving on to Craig, Clark, and Company, and then decided he liked the, the other two named place better. So then he just went back to them. <laughs> Just a little shifting around. Exactly. And yes, all those names were so tough for me to say. (laughs) So he stayed there until 1872 when he saved up $4,000, which would be around $856,506 today. That's a lot of money. And he used this to start his own business where he sold booze. Okay. That's always a, you know, guaranteed uh, income provider. Exactly. Dreaming big. Everyone, big and boozy. Ever big and boozy. Everyone loves to get their drank on. Oh, yes. This business later turned into what he is best known for other than murder. His sausage empire. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's actually known as the Chicago Sausage King. So this man is royalty right here. Wait, wasn't there a Chicago Sausage King in Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Maybe. I'd have to watch it again. I have the DVD somewhere. Goodness, this is taking a dramatic turn for me so far, this yes. story. Bueller, Bueller. <laughs> uh, so the business was called A.L. Ludgert Sausage and Packing Company. This started in 1879. So this little business of his ended up making him quite a bit of money, and he was actually one of the largest producers of sausage in Chicago. The main reason he was so successful was because he found a way to produce sausage in both summer and winter, which was something most at the time were just unable to do. I don't exactly know why, but I'm assuming it must have something to do with refrigeration, maybe. Mm -hmm. I tried looking it up, and all I found were summer sausage recipes. I'm now a fucking expert at cooking summer sausage. I never wanted that in my life, but okay. Oh my gosh, you know what's kind of funny? Uh, Recently, my wife and I were talking about summer sausages, and I'm like, I don't know what they are. And she like did this whole like look up dive on the internet. So I oh feel like god. you could be Ashley's like bestest friend when it comes to her summer sausage questions now. Oh my god, apparently, yeah, because I I know a lot about summer sausage now. <laughs> well, how to make it anyway. Lots of recipes. So right before starting his business, he married a woman by the name of Carolyn Ropke, I'm assuming it's pronounced. I don't know. It's R-O-E-P-K-E. So I don't trust that many vowels in weird orders and then weird consonants and more vowels. So, yeah, that seems a little tough. Yeah, so we're just going to say rope key and hope for the best. I do mean literally right after, too, because this was also 1872. So, oh. Yeah. So he married her in Germany, and she came to live with him in America sometime later between the birth of their first child, who was born in Germany in 1875, and her death in November of 1877. They had two children together in total. Couldn't really find a lot of information about her, but Hmm. I guess he didn't take her death too hard since he remarried two months later in January of the following year. Either that or he was just really lonely without her. Yeah, that's kind of tough to tell. And plus, if he already had a kid, it's like, you got to get a mom for that kid. Yeah, well, I knew someone when I was younger whose mother died, and then my mom ran into the husband. And he was already married to another woman, like, only a few months or, like, a year after. Oh, that's quick. And he was like, a lot of people asked me why I remarried so fast, but I was just really lonely and couldn't do it without her. Mm. It was really freaking sad. And unfortunately, his new wife was right there, and she just looked so upset. 
wows. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's understandable why you'd be upset if your your new spouse it's, said something I like know, that. I know, I know. But it's funny because I can also see where he's coming from, you know? Right. So it's just really shitty all all around. So this new wife, her name was Louisa Bicknice. He went on to have four more children with her, but sadly, due to medicine back then and everything, only three of the six children lived to be older than two. That number also changes depending on the source, with some stating only two of his children lived past two, so I don't know. Uh, Louisa was said to be very pretty. She was also a German immigrant and had been working as a servant. He was nine years older than her, and everything seemed to be going great for the King of Sausage Land at this point, especially during the Columbian Exhibition, or Exposition, depending on the source, uh, in Chicago, where he supplied the hot dogs. Really? Yes. He truly was the Sausage King. Exactly. And now I've got a fun fact twofer for you. Okay, lay it on me. First of all, if you're wondering what the event is that I'm talking about, it's the World's Fair. That's right. The one with the Ferris wheel and H.H. Holmes's murder hotel. What a great time to be alive and subsequently murdered. <laughs> Accurate statement all around. Yes. Other fun fact. Did you know hot dogs used to have a casing like sausage does? I did know that. You know why? Because uh, a certain someone, aka the love of my life, really enjoys natural casing sausages and oh, like gross. hot dogs, and I'm like not about them. They're not for me. So you know what the casing is then? Yeah. That's right. It's intestines. A pig's delicious poop highway. Oh God! <laughs> Never again. <laughs> it's funny because when I read that aloud to Damon last night, uh, he was like, "Oh, I can never eat hot dogs again." Never again. I'm with him on that one. Yeah, right. Well, hot dogs don't have that casing anymore. And a lot of sausages, even that's synthetic now. So you don't have to worry about it too much. Thanks, Eden, for lessening that blow. But I will tell you, um, so, you know, the hot dogs no longer do have their natural casings. Mm -hmm. And a lot of sausage casings are artificial, like I said. But if you do enjoy chowing down on a delicious hot dog, like most of us out there do, just know that you are probably eating pig vagina, penis, and butthole. Just saying. That's right. This show is about death and murder, yet the most disgusting thing is food for some reason. <laughs> I mean, you got to be real about it. Exactly. So since now none of you will ever eat another hot dog in any of your lives, let's make sure that you don't sleep tonight either as I will continue my story. Sadly, after the amazing World's Fair ended, the city sunk into a depression and people just weren't buying sausage like they used to. Lutka tried to get out of the business by selling it, but someone swindled him out of his money instead, and he actually ended up going bankrupt at this point. So by this point, he and Louisa had grown accustomed to a certain lifestyle that just wasn't feasible anymore with no money. It also didn't help that Adolf hid this bit of information from his wife. Yikes. Yeah, when she finally did find out that he had no money, she was furious, and it was reported by the neighbors that everyone in the area could hear their fights and that some of them were violent. Uh, the neighbors also heard Louisa say that she was planning on leaving Adolf. Mm-mm, girl. There was also rumor that Adolf was cheating on her with other women. Uh, the women in question were Christine Fields, who was a wealthy widow, and I don't have any information to back those claims of adultery for that one, but I do for our next lucky lady. The other other woman was their housekeeper. The other other woman. Yes. Nice. 
So she was a lady by the name of Mary Symering. Uh, Lukert was reportedly seen kissing her by some of his workers, his co-workers, or I guess underlings. He had a bed in his factory office in which he would sleep as well as presumably bang these women who weren't his wife. Wow. Well, honey, yeah. I, I'm just working late. Working late on yeah. my secretary. Gross. Right. Gross. So then on May 1st of 1897, Louisa just up and vanished. Hmm. Her brother, who hadn't seen her in a while and didn't know where she could be, called the police and reported her missing. Uh, when Lukert was questioned about this, he said that he did that she did in fact leave him and probably went back to Germany or that she was with some other guy. Oh, women are such wanton, lustful creatures after all. I love how anytime a immigrant disappears, they're like, they probably just went back to wherever they ran away from in the first place. Exactly. The place they didn't want to be, so they came here. They just right. went back to trying to escape war and famine and poverty in their country. And they went right back. So where could she be, I wonder? Well, the night before all of this went down, Lukert spent the, a late night in his factory working in the basement. So no one would be around. He sent his night watchman out to a pharmacy. Okay. Not suspicious at all. Mm -mm. And even less suspicious is how the very next day he made sure to have a group of workers clean in and around the giant vat where something may or may not have happened that I will soon tell you about. Uh -oh. Spoiler alert. It totally happened. Oh my God. I'm like already dreading this story. Right. Anyway. When the workers were cleaning this vat out, they noticed this gross-smelling reddish scum in and around it. Gross. Obviously, some people who worked for him, especially his night watchman, were getting a little uneasy about whatever he had been doing there since Louisa is now missing and suddenly he's acting like a giant creeper. So the night watchman ended up talking to the police about it, and they go and they search his place. Mm -hmm. Well, they had that vat drained. And I guess the cleaning crew didn't quite live up to their name because inside they found pieces of bone, corset stays, and two rings, one of which was engraved with the initials LL for Louisa Lutgert. He didn't even take off her clothing or jewelry? Holy crap. Nope. He just like dumped her. Oh, man. Oh, man. I so, can't even. Yeah, exactly. When checking into what Adolf was up to prior to his wife's disappearance, they noticed that he had purchased copious amounts of arsenic and potash which is an alkaline potassium compound. They were also able to figure out that Lukert and his wife were seen entering the factory together at around 10.30 on the night of her disappearance. They ended up arresting him the very next day. So they believe that he used the arsenic to poison her, probably borrowing Lydia Sherman's thimble. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. A little dabble do you. Yeah, exactly. Just like Brill Cream. <laughs> After that, to dispose of the body, he boiled her remains in the vat filled with the, the potash. Okay. Uh, he went to trial in August of 1897, and the trial was my favorite kind, a crazy fest from start to finish. Oh, really? Oh, it's not as great as the pig lady or anything. But... All right, all right, that's fair. I mean, not everything could be a pig lady. Exactly. So over a thousand people turned up for the show, and I, I mean trial, every day. <laughs> This was one of the very first trials to be heavily covered by news outlets, with some less than scrupulous ones even trying to eavesdrop 
on what was going on during jury deliberation. They would like try to sneak back there and get whatever they were saying. Really? That's yes. That is wow. That's quite the like uh, what circus trial? Like yes, absolutely. Circus of a trial. Mm. The New York Journal actually covered this one pretty heavily, with Julian Hawthorne being the one to cover it, aka Nathaniel Hawthorne's son. Oh, yeah. So first off, the prosecution had their work cut out for them due to the fact that there was no longer a body. We've discussed this before. Crimes are always harder to prosecute without a body, but it has been done. And since Lukert has already disposed of the body, there was no way it was coming back. Unlike Louisa, whom the defense stated time and time again was not even dead, but had just left her husband uh, and was sure to return any day to save him from being accused of a crime that he just clearly did not commit. Yeah, they're trying to say that she is completely not dead and that she was just right there all along and still loves her husband, so she's coming back. She's just on her rest and communicado rest vacation. It's fine. Exactly. She's in Cabo San Lucas. It's fine. (laughs) Drinking Mai Tais by the beach. So, in fact, Louisa had actually been spotted a million times during this trial all across the country. Really? Yes. Most of them were just people lying to seem cool or involved in some way since this trial was a big deal. Uh, This is the Sausage King, after all. Fair, fair. Other people did see women that were matching her description, though, when they would call it in. Everybody wants a piece of that sausage. Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) It's a mighty big sausage. Wink, wink. (laughs) So according to Murder by Gaslight, though, the supposed Louisas were actually just drunks or insane women wandering around the streets alone. Okay, I didn't realize that was like a like eighteenth what nineteenth century thing that happened. <laughs> yeah, I guess just drunk ladies wandering around. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, you know how how women can be. I, I mean, I do, I do. We have some pretty amazing folks in, that I've seen wandering around my neighborhood sometimes, but uh, <laughs> usually it's you know exactly. As far as the bones in the vat went, experts stated that they came from a small woman. But I guess the defense didn't believe in that bad, evil thing that we call science because they were like, um, how do you even know they're human? What sorcery is this? <laughs> to be fair, this was one of the earliest trials to use the findings of a forensic anthropologist, so I kind of get it. Um, oddly enough, and I wish they had more information on this part, But both the defense and the prosecution decided that they wanted to prove their points by boiling cadavers in in potash. And oddly enough, whatever points they were trying to make, they both ended up proving that they were right. I really don't know how that works, but it's kind of cool, I guess. Yeah. Hmm. People also noted that Lutgert seemed uh, to seem unbothered by the situation in front of him during the trial and was sure that he would be found innocent. And unfortunately, due to the weirdness of this trial, it ended in a hung jury, which led to another trial in January of the following year, and he was finally found guilty of murdering his wife. He was sentenced to life in prison at Joliet Prison. It wasn't a very long sentence after all, though, because Lukert ended up dying of heart heart problems in 1899, so he was only in jail for about one year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hardly justice. Exactly. But if you're ever in Chicago and you want to check out this factory for yourself, it's still around today. It's on the uh, 
1700 block of West Diversity Parkway. There was a rumor that the building burnt to the ground all the way back in 1902, which was just a few scant years after Adolf's passing. This, however, was not true, although a fire did actually take place in 1904. So, that was the weird tale of the Sausage King of Chicago and his wife, who apparently looked like a bunch of drunk chicks wandering around. So, <laughs> Nicole, do you want some sausage? You know what? I, this isn't going to hinder my love of sausage, I'll tell you that much, because sometimes a girl just needs a tasty summer and or fresh sausage. Who knows? I'm not going to judge. I mean, a girl does like her hot Italian sausage from time to time. <laughs> Some people call it bologna. <laughs> bologna. Bologna. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of weird because like, when you were telling me the story, it seemed like something that you would hear in a movie. Yeah. Right? Like, this is how they got rid of the body, and it's, like, made them into sausages. I, I don't know. Maybe it's because we've come across a couple of killers before who have, like, disposed of their victims via... In food. Yeah, in food. It's not something that's outside the realm of aha. Uh-huh. But I feel like even in those stories, like, I, I flash back to, to my paranormal story from Pennsylvania with uh, Matthias Schumbacher and how he supposedly would murder travelers and make them into sausage. And, oh, that's right. Yet another German making sausage. But, <laughs> well, that is their thing. So <laughs> Apparently. But it, it's, it's like crazy to me that this is an actual for real thing that happened that we have documentation on because they found the bones and the corset pieces and the ring like in the sausage vat. Like what? Yeah, that is really freaking weird. Nuts. Absolutely nuts. And uh, I, luckily, I did not find anything about him making her into sausage, at least. I think he just, like, disintegrated her body in this vat. Ah, uh, that, I mean, that but does But then he probably him... cooked sausage afterwards in it, so it doesn't really matter anyway. Right, the fact that the cleaning crew missed stuff, and they still made sausages the next day. Like I know. They're about as good as the deep cleaning crew that comes in to clean our warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, they, I watch them and they just spray something, wipe it with a dirty rag and walk away. And that's the deep clean. Good stuff. Good stuff. I always cracked up because when I, I work completely from home now, but when I had an office, you'd come in and you see like the cleaning crew, like pushing the little cart and you get to like your desk and it would still like it would be all dusty and like every surface would be dusty. But those yeah. bathrooms are quasi clean. <laughs> quasi clean. I guess <laughs> yeah. that's the best you can hope for. Exactly. My sources for this week were... Wikipedia, murderbygaslight.com, Murderpedia, YaleReview.yale.edu, HistoricalCrimeDetective.com, Guides.loc.gov, Chicagoology.com, FindAGrave.com, AlchemyOfBones.com, and I think that's it. Cool. Thanks for that story, Eden. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed it. I think it's good point for us to take a quick break and then we'll come back with some weird news of the week and my paranormal story which i i hope you'll enjoy i'm sure you probably heard it before but i just love it so much i had to cover it oh absolutely i would love to hear it nice we'll be right back then and we're back we're back and i have a crazy news article for y'all uh it's courtesy of the daily beast and it says New Orleans Archbishop says he burned a church altar where demonic priest had dominatrix threesome. I need to know more about this. Yes. Uh, Apparently this happened October 9th. Uh, A kinky sex romp between New Orleans priest and two dominatrices 
on a church altar has led New Orleans Archbishop Gregory Amond to set fire to the altar where the deplorable act took place. The New Orleans Advocate reports, Amond called Reverend Travis Clark demonic for the unholy encounter, all of which was recorded. What? There's a tape? Yup. The Pearl River pastor has reportedly been arrested after he was allegedly caught having sex with the two women on his church's altar. According to WWL-TV, an eyewitness said the women were dressed in corsets and high-heeled boots, a phone was recording the sinful act on a tripod, and the church was kitted out with sex toys and a lighting rig. One of the women works as a dominatrix and, on the day of the incident, posted that she was on her way to, quote, defile a house of God, end quote. Clark and the two women were all booked on obscenity charges, and a ritual was later performed to cleanse the church of sin. Meanwhile, Bradley Phillips, an attorney for the two women, said his clients had done nothing wrong since the sex was not in public view. Oh my God, that, there's so much good stuff in that weird story, dude. <laughs> I know. I thought that was pretty great. But I love how like they're like, we're going to sanctify this, but also set fire to the altar. I'm like, wow. Yeah. I would think like holy water might be probably good enough, a nice like deep cleaning. Yeah, but I mean, setting fire to the altar sounds kind of sacrilegious in its own right. I mean, it's not an altar anymore. It's a sex day demonic possession altar. Exactly. Just, I just, when I came across that, I was like, what the ever loving shit is going on? <sighs> wow. New Orleans, still a party town, man. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> well, now that we've got the fun stuff out of the way. I know. I'm like, my paranormal story is not going to top that. <laughs> They topped him, though. Ooh, I see what you did there. And God did, too. Well, God's always on top. So, Nicole, you have your story for us. I do. I do. Our stop today is in Justice, Illinois, a village of about 13,000 residents. It's located also in Cook County. So it's just outside of Chicago, Illinois' largest city, as you mentioned in your story. The Village of Justice grew up alongside Archer Avenue, which is also known today as Illinois State Route 171. Now, Archer Avenue has been a major travel corridor ever since the first European settlers arrived in the area. And Justice kind of grew up alongside of it. Uh, the, The village itself was actually incorporated and named Justice in 1911, but there have been settlers in the area since the 19th century. Okay. Now, Archer Avenue follows the original trail crossing for the Chicago Portage, which was between the Chicago River and the Des Plaines River. And it also later was a popular stagecoach route. Eventually, it was paved. And today, Archer Avenue runs parallel to the Illinois and Michigan Canal and the Alton Rail Line. I've always wanted to like ride in like, a little stagecoach. I know, right? It seems like it'd be really cool. It would be. Uh, for most of the 19th century, the area of justice was called Mount Forest or Seafield and was mostly made up of farmland. However, an influx of German and Irish immigrants and then later Polish immigrants came to the area to work the nearby farms or to work along the Illinois and Michigan Canal. And this influx of new immigrants really helped the small community to grow. And eventually it had become several blocks long along the north side of Archer Avenue by 1890. It's growing. It's a growing. It's also around the 1890s that Chicago itself is experiencing a population and building boom. 
Um, so this results in even more growth in the area, especially in 1894 when Bethania Cemetery was established on the northeast side of the settlement. Now, Bethania Cemetery generated a lot of economic growth for the area, which is kind of surprising because you figure how much loot can dead people rake in. That's true. Well, apparently it led to not only three new monument companies opening in the village to supply headstones, but it also led to a boom in picnic groves and taverns opening along Archer Avenue. Basically, in 1901, the city of Chicago established streetcar service from Chicago to Juliet along Archer Avenue. So folks would come out from Chicago on the weekends to visit their loved ones' graves and then stop in the picnic rows and taverns that were out there for them to enjoy. Eventually, this became a popular location for people who just wanted to get out of the city, didn't really need to stroll around the cemetery. They would just come and enjoy a picnic or one of the restaurants on the weekend. I would have a picnic in the cemetery. I mean, that is kind of why memorial parks are built the way they are. And this is definitely that memorial park time of yeah. uh, cemetery buildings. So I'm sure they were lovely. Now, this demand for not only outside of city recreational space, but an idyllic final resting place conveniently located along Archer Avenue resulted in the establishment of yet another cemetery in Justice in 1904. That second memorial park is actually our stop for today. Welcome to Resurrection Cemetery, home to one of the most famous ghosts in the Chicago area. All right. Now I'm wondering if I have heard this before or not. I think it'll sound a little familiar once I get to the infamous ghost in question. But first, a little bit more about this cemetery because it, it, it itself is really cool. I'm sure. I love old cemeteries. Uh, then I think you'd really dig uh, Resurrection Cemetery. Uh, first of all, it's a Roman Catholic burial grounds. So, of course, you know us Roman Catholics. We love our angels and our decorations and our stained glass windows. Of course. You can find all of that at Resurrection Cemetery. And it's also gigantic. It's over 540 acres. Uh, according to the most recent numbers I could find, the cemetery has over 152,000 graves as well as 5,300 crypts and mausoleums. So there's a lot of people buried there. Well, I can see some of the crypts. I just Googled it. Yeah, they're really pretty, right? Yeah. There's one in particular that has a stained glass window that is so large, it is apparently in the running for one of the largest stained glass windows in the world. I'm actually looking at it right now. I'm looking at it <laughs> just as you said that. And it's got like a plane and other stuff. Yeah, it's like very modern. Um, yeah. Oh, there's a satellite dish. Mm -hmm. I want to say it was like built in the 70s. Resurrection Cemetery is actually built in an unusual shape as well. Uh, it's the shape of a large isosceles triangle. So one of those triangles that has two sides that are even connected by a shorter side. Yes. And this has led local residents to dub the area the Resurrection Triangle. And this is mostly due to all the weird, strange, ghostly sightings that have been reported at Resurrection Cemetery over the years. What is it with triangles? I mean, it's, it's a very primordial shape. I guess, yeah. A lot of power in that shape. It's one of the deadly hollows, Eden, come on. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> now, most of these reports of ghostly sightings at Resurrection Cemetery involve a young woman in a white dress. And a lot of times she's referred to as Resurrection Mary. Okay, that name came up when I Googled it. Well, stop Googling. <laughs> well, I put my phone down now, okay? 
God, you're so bossy. You love it. Come on. Nicole, you're so bossy and domineering. I've never seen this side of you before. I, better, I like it. I better call a priest. <laughs> now, over the past 80 years, Resurrection Mary has appeared to the living in various ways. In the 1940s, the most common stories were related to evenings spent at the long-ago defunct O. Henry's Ballroom, which is a short three-and-a-half-mile ride down Archer Avenue from Resurrection Cemetery. Okay, I like it. So back in the 1940s, O. Henry Ballroom hosted some of the biggest names in the big band music scene. So folks like Count Basie and Tommy Dorsey, Artie Shaw, all those guys played at O. Henry's. And several of the male patrons who went to the ballroom looking for a fun night of dancing and maybe some romance ended up having a otherworldly experience, to say the least. We all hope for otherworldly experiences when looking for romance. A lot of times it falls flat, but I guess not for these guys. Not at all. Uh, I found a bunch of stories about some of these men encountering Resurrection Mary at O'Henry's, but the one that had the best documentation is a story told by Gerald Palace. Um, which encompasses most of the hallmarks of uh, a night out with Resurrection Mary. So one evening in the mid-1940s, Gerald was at O'Henry's ballroom, and he finally worked up the courage to ask for a dance from this pretty blonde girl he had noticed at the ballroom a couple times before. She agreed to a dance, and the couple spent a few of the faster songs on the dance floor together. When the music slowed, Gerald saw his opportunity to chat up the pretty girl. She was pretty quiet, but he did learn a couple pieces of information, like her name was Mary and that she lived nearby on Damon Avenue in Brighton Park. At the time, Gerald also lived in Brighton Park, and he was about to tell her as much when he noticed how cold Mary's skin seemed. Uh-oh. Yeah. And then he said that Mary seemed to notice that he noticed, so he made what he hoped was a lighthearted remark, and he told her, quote, cold hands mean you have a warm heart. Oh, God. It's pretty smooth, though. (laughs) This apparently tickled Mary just as much as it tickled me, and the two of them danced together for the rest of the band's set. At the end of the evening, Gerald offered her a ride home since they lived in the same neighborhood. They hopped into his Chevy, and they started to drive a few miles north when suddenly Mary asked Gerald to pull the car over near the gates of Resurrection Cemetery. Ooh, he thinks he's going to get lucky. Mm Mm-hmm. Otherworldly, Eden. Yep. <laughs> now, when Mary started to get out of the car, Gerald was super confused because this was not what he was expecting, and he asked her where she was going. She turned around from outside the car, looked at him with these apparently very, very sad, regretful eyes, and told him, I have to go, and you can't follow me. Then she turned, Damn. stepped towards the gates, and vanished. Ghosted by a ghost. Totally ghosted by a ghost. That's a rough night out. And see, this is why you got it not drunk text, guys, because you try to type in Erection Mary to find her, and then instead you get Resurrection Mary, and it just doesn't work out in your favor. You up, Yo, girl, you up. <laughs> so this freaked Gerald out, but he was still like, well, maybe she slipped away and I didn't notice. So he spends the rest of the night driving up and down Archer Avenue looking for Mary and really anybody wearing a white dress. Finally, daylight rolls around and he returns to the cemetery. He doesn't see any sign of anyone being in the cemetery. So Lavinia Fisher would have done too? Yeah, basically. He would have been like, yo, Lavinia girl, let me holler at you. Yeah, I'll marry you so you can avoid the death penalty. (laughs) So uh, eventually Gerald's like not one to give up because apparently he really liked this Mary girl. 
he finally drives home to Brighton Park and he stops by the Damon Avenue address that she gave him uh, before going to his own home. He gets there and he finds that it's the address of a small brick bungalow. He goes up, knocks on the door, and he asks the woman who answers, actor, if, if Mary's there. Um, so it's this middle-aged blonde woman. He, she kind of looks a little familiar and the woman basically tells him that Mary doesn't live there anymore. Uh, she actually died four years ago in a car accident. Uh, so this f- totally freaks Gerald out. And he kind of makes his, his apologies, expresses sympathy for the woman's loss, and leaves. He never goes back to O. Henry's ballroom or Resurrection Cemetery again. It's reminding me of a lot of ghost stories that I've heard. A lot of them set in like the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also reminds me of that, what was that movie called? Susie Q. I think it was like a Disney movie or something. Mm. With uh, the Pink Power Ranger, Amy Jo Johnson. Oh, I don't know if I ever saw that. Yeah, it was like probably mid-90s, I want to say. Was she like a 50s bebop lady who died in some kind of tragic yes. car accident? All right, all right. This is. I think they went to like the bridge where she died and all this stuff. And it was weird. I don't remember it very well, but I, hope I liked on, it at the time. I hope it's on Disney Plus because I would watch that. I'm sure it is. <laughs> Uh, you're right, though. Uh, the Resurrection Mary story is really, really um, similar to a lot of other like phantom traveler stories. Yes. And uh, I know for me, it's one of the first ones I remember learning about. And it freaked me out, I think, mostly because it was on Unsolved Mysteries when I was a kid. Uh, thank- oh, cool. Yeah. Like, thanks, Robert Stack, because this was a terrifying story for, you know, an eight year old to watch. Um- <laughs> I told you about my teacher that uh, ended up taping like unsolved mysteries the one night and then having us watch it in school the next day what yeah i don't know why because it's not like we were learning about murder and other things but you know maybe they just realized they had had like one beer too many and they were like i'm gonna need a video for the kids tomorrow right (laughs) yeah so so like the the whole like phantom traveler phantom hitchhiker thing that's kind of that kind of sounds like what happened to uh gerald and a lot of these guys in like the 1940s who encountered resurrection mary but then the, her sightings uh, kind of slowed down in the 1950s and 60s. And a lot of people think it had to do with the fact that O. Henry's ballroom closed. And then suddenly in the 1970s, the manifestations of Mary sort of shift gears a little bit. And huh. it, yeah, so it's like kind of weird. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, when you read these stories about this like ghost woman from the 40s, it's very much like she passes for a human and interacts with these guys for like hours. Yeah. And then when you get towards the 70s, it's, it's these stories of folks who are driving along Archer Avenue and they're passing through justice and they start to have these strange encounters with a young blonde woman who's just kind of wandering down the road at night. And a lot of times they kind of have these similar veins of her being kind of disoriented or confused. Um, also, too, the police got involved several times, uh, in particular, like in August of 1976, for example, the Justice Police Department received a bunch of calls from worried drivers who were on Archer Avenue. And the driver said that they saw this young woman wearing a white dress who was wandering around inside Resurrection Cemetery. Oh, and these drivers were concerned that, you know, they locked the cemetery at nights, these big uh, chains and, and padlocks. So they were like, she's probably trapped and, you know, somebody needs to go get her out. So the police department sends a patrol car over and the two police officers get there and start searching the cemetery. And they're, of course, walking around the outside using their bullhorn to see if anybody's there. And they don't see anybody, but they get to one of the gates on the side of the cemetery and they see that two of the brass bars on the gates are like bent apart. 
Oh, I saw a picture of that too. Yeah, it's so creepy. So the, the picture that Aiden's talking about is like this bit. It's like this like um, green like patinaed uh, brass gate, yeah. and the bars are pulled apart almost like someone's trying to fit through them. And there's these blackened finger marks, as if somebody with burning hands actually pulled the gate apart. It's really freaking weird. Yeah. It's like they're still there this day. Like they've tried to like refurbish the bars and stuff, and it still shows the, the black fingerprints. That is so weird. Uh, another strange encounter that happened uh, in the 70s or 80s kind of fall into that second category. Uh, so it's not really a phantom hitchhiker, it's more of this like um, ghostly hit and run. And they kind of flip, flip back and forth in the 1970s. And then when you get into the 80s and 90s, it's always a hit and run thing interesting i love how like the lore changes Mm -hmm. over the years uh one of the best phantom hitchhiker encounters uh, i've ever seen documented because it was actually in a newspaper it was in the suburban tribune in january of 1979 okay and it's a hilarious article uh one because it's this cab driver who basically dropped off his last fare along archer avenue and then got horribly lost oh no (laughs) yeah so he ends up uh, at on Archer Avenue near Willowbrook Road, which is where the O. Henry Ballroom used to be located. And that's when he sees this like blonde woman in a white dress wandering around the entrance of a, of a shopping center. And he's kind of concerned because it's like January outside Chicago and this woman doesn't have any kind of coat on. She just kind of has this like slip of a white dress. So he pulls over because he's like, you know, she can't be more than 21. She reminds me of my daughter. Let me pull over. Damn it, Mary. <laughs> Exactly. So he pulls over, he offers the girl a ride, and she gives him an address that's, again, on Damon Avenue as her destination. And, you know, he tries to chat with her, and he's just like, so, how was your night? What what, what do you been up to? Blah, blah, blah. But she seems, according to him, like, really out of it, like, almost like she was drunk or maybe had smoked something. Yeah. All she, all she really says is, like, I want to go to Damon Avenue, and she says things like, the snow came early this year over and over again huh weird so and again of course because the cab's on archer avenue it's heading towards resurrection resurrection cemetery when it gets there she starts shouting here here and the cabbie's super confused because he's like this is a cemetery lady and he turns back to ask her where exactly she meant and she's disappeared from the backseat of his cab Ooh, okay. Yeah, so I thought that was like really spooky and the fact that it was in a newspaper, I was like, oh, kadoki. And the cabbie was kind of hilarious because he's like, yeah, she was a real looker. Not that I would do anything. You know, she reminded <laughs> me of my daughter, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh my goodness, this guy. <laughs> well, I mean, some people are grossly into that. Yeah, I mean, mm, let's not talk about our current president. Let's not talk about our president like yeah. that, I guess, but. <laughs> uh, so onto the ghostly hit and run. So after the 70s, like I said, like you don't really see a lot of these phantom hitchhiker stories anymore around Resurrection Mary. You see a lot of these hit and run stories and they're all kind of scary as shit. According, like, like I would be super scared if this happened to me because I have a fear of hitting animals in the dark, let alone people. Oh, no, I know what you're going to say and I already don't like it. <laughs> so one of the stories uh, that I docu- that was really well documented about this sort of phantom hit and run was a story um, that Sean and Jerry Lapp told. So one night in the 80s, the couple were driving down Archer Avenue on their way home, and suddenly a young woman in a white dress darts in front of the car. Sean's not able to stop in time, and they both watch in horror as they hit the woman. 
But instead of feeling the impact uh, and hearing a thud of hitting a person, they see the figure of the woman basically just dissipate in the car headlights. Weird. Yeah. So they're super freaked out. So they stop at the nearest place and it is Chet's Melody Lounge, which is actually located right across the street from Resurrection Cemetery. And they go in there and they're like, oh, my God, I, we, we may have hit somebody. We couldn't tell. It was very weird. And the bartender kind of nonchalantly tells them, you didn't hit anybody. You, everything's fine. You probably just encountered Resurrection Mary. Oh, God. So it's happened before. Yep. So basically, over the years, people have been stopping into Chet's to report that they hit somebody on Archer Avenue and that they need help. And the first couple of times this happened, the staff was like, oh, my God. And they would call emergency services. And by the time that you know EMS would respond at, to the site of the accident, they wouldn't find anything. There would be no body. But the really creepy, weird thing is that in some instances of this encounter, there would be the shape of a woman's body in the snow or in like the wet grass where the drivers thought they hit someone. Oh, I don't like that at all. Mm-mm, mm-mm. So nope. it's so nerve wracking because you're like, maybe I did hit somebody. I don't know. But I guess this has happened so frequently over the past like 20 or 30 years that the employees at Chet's Melody Lounge have kind of embraced Resurrection, Resurrection Mary, and they kind of have this weekly tradition that they do. So reportedly, each Sunday, they mix up a Bloody Mary cocktail, and they set it on the edge of the bar in the hopes that maybe one day, instead of wandering along Archer Avenue, Resurre- Resurrection Mary will stop in and wet her whistle in this local watering hole. Well, you know what? If I'm a ghost and you want me to do that, it's got to be something other than a freaking Bloody Mary because those things are gross. I hate tomato juice. <laughs> so spicy. I thought that was hilarious that they chose a Bloody Mary because I'm like, you know, if she is right. a lady from the 40s, she's going to want, you know, a proper cocktail. Oh, yeah. She's going to want some kind of highball type cocktail. But anyway, so that's that's the crazy ass story of, of Resurre- Resurrection Mary who goes from this like very, you know, phantom hitchhiker ghost apparition to... Something, something else. I don't even know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird because, like I said before, the lore changes over the years. And you don't normally see that with ghosts. Like, I mean, obviously, she is more of an intelligent spirit rather than just, you know, energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, because she is able to interact with people in such a way. But it's just, it's very strange uh, that it would go from, I'm a party in this bar, to... I'm going to get rides from dudes and disappear to I'm going to have guys hit me with their car. (laughs) Yeah. It it almost seems. uh, She got kinky over the years. Yeah. Or it's like it's like that, like the spirit is like forgetting what it was in life, something like that. That's what it kind of strikes me as. Like now it's just this kind of like rote kind of like trying to get back to the cemetery any way she can. Um, It was interesting, too, because, uh, you know, Mary's a pretty common name and. Some of the folks who have researched the story of Resurrection Mary have found a couple possible deaths that are around the same time period that that a lot of folks have said the stories originate from that could possibly be Resurrection Mary. Yeah. Uh, So it's interesting because there's like definitely a a young woman named Mary who is in her 20s who was killed on the way to O'Henry's ballroom. That's like very well documented. There was another girl who also died along uh, Archer Avenue who was named Mary was hitchhiking at the time and the interesting thing is that neither of the women actually match the physical description of the apparition that people always give because it's always this consistent blonde woman pretty blonde woman in a white dress well maybe you can be 
whatever you want to look like in death. And maybe she chose a pretty blonde woman. Yeah, maybe. That's a good point. But I, I thought that was super interesting that like there is like, you know, possible suspected resurrection Mary candidates out there. Yeah, that's interesting. And also her name just keeps reminding me of Oceanborn Mary. Yes, a little bit. I get that. Uh, my sources for today were Wikipedia, ghostresearch.org, chicagoreader.com, Encyclopedia of Chicago, and WGNTV.com. Thank you, Nicole. That was really cool. I'm glad you liked it. It's one of my favorite, favorite ghost stories of all time, I think. Yeah, it's really neat. And I like the fact that it's like not, I mean, it's a little terrifying because, you know, I don't want to have that experience where I think I hit someone with my freaking car. But <laughs> it's a bit, you know, nicer than our other spirits that we've talked about. So, yes. Yeah. It's like, it's kind of funny because it's like, she's not about hurting you or terrorizing you. She's got shit to do. Okay. She's out for a good time and then a ride home. Exactly. Yes. Which is all I ever want to. <laughs> ditto. Ditto. <laughs> So I guess that wraps up our episode for this week. That it does. Uh, if you have any feedback, if you liked our stories, if you have any suggestions for stories we should cover, um, let us know. We have a bunch of ways that you could get in contact with Eden and I. If you love email, like some folks do, you can send us a quick note at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. Or write us a novel there, too. We don't care. We'll read it. Um, we've got the time. Actually, we don't. But we'll <laughs> pretend. Uh, you can also visit our website at roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. We're on Facebook and Instagram as Roadside Horror Show and also Twitter at Roadside Horror. So, you know, at us if you want. Uh, we'd like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our uh, logo and E. Massey for our intro and outro music. Until next time, Roadsters, creep, creep on, on, creeping on. on.